Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, the joy of music in three distinct forms. Later in the program, we'll honor the legacy of Freddie Cole, the jazz great who passed away earlier this summer. Five members of Atlanta's jazz community, including WABE's own H. Johnson, will tell us what made Freddie Cole's music special for them. Special is something we also associate with the Fox Theater in Atlanta and its historic organ known as the Mighty Mo. Fox organist Ken Double will explain the history of theater organ as well as the instrument itself, which can sound like an entire orchestra. First, a more intimate form of music. Throughout history, whistling has been used for communication to signal someone entertain, or just as a form of self-expression. Earlier this month, the International Whistlers Guild announced Georgian Andy Offit Irwin as a top 25 finalist of the first ever online Global Whistling Championship. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke about the competition with Andy and one of the Guild's founders, Geiska Lassa. Here, Andy Offiterwin explains his initial attraction to the art of whistling. Whistling was sort of like a language in my house. I was probably 10 or 11 before I realized that not everybody in the world could whistle whatever tune they wanted to. And then around the seventh grade, I would whistle like a taxi whistle, the Star Spangled Banner before we played kickball. And then it just sort of kind of started rolling. And I always tell the story of I was in the ninth grade at a district clinic band camp. I was a drummer. And I was whistling Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring. And a band director came up to me and he looked at me and he, and he sort of sneered. He said, if you're going to do that, don't rush and practice intonation. And he walked off. 
And I don't know who he was, but he changed my life. <laughs> so I'm a singer songwriter as well. So I, I whistle because it's cheaper than a keyboard player. <laughs> well, speaking of language, as I was looking through the 25 finalists on YouTube, I was kind of thinking about the universality of whistling and how it breaks those barriers of language because you guys have submissions from the Netherlands, South Korea, LA, Japan, New York, Georgia, all over. Geiska, can you talk about the International Whistlers Guild, which was founded this year? Can you talk about how it was created? I didn't realize that there was such a large community of whistlers. Yeah, this community has kind of grown organically. We all compete in these competitions in Los Angeles and Tokyo, and we just become friends because that's what we love doing in our free time. That's what, how we spend our vacations and take time off of work. And so we create a good core group of people and we stay in touch through WhatsApp. And so on WhatsApp, it's where we share ideas about whistling. And the idea of creating a 2020 competition came up whenever the pandemic hit because our competition in Tokyo was supposed to be held this year. And when I say our, I mean the whistling community. There's a wonderful separate organization in Japan for whistlers and they put on that competition. And it was canceled this year. And so we were all devastated. And a few of us just decided, well, everyone else is using Zoom and virtual everything. Let's do a virtual competition. Geiska, about how many submissions did you receive? We had a total of 131 participants. And in the 25 finalists that we had, we had 13 countries represented. Wow. How did you guys go about judging these finalists in order to pair them down to just 25? So we had uh, three judges that we hired and contracted their musicians. They're wonderful. And for our awards ceremony on September 3rd, you can get to know them a little more or on our website, but they're musicians that you know wanted to help the art and they were friends of ours. So we decided on a rubric that they could use to give an actual numerical number back to the participants so that they can know what they can improve on. Things like uh, intonation, like Andy was talking about. Tuning was a big one. They just needed to make sure that they used that scorecard as they could. And uh, through their musical background, they were able to, I think, pick a pretty good group of the 25 finalists. Can you talk about the guidelines that was for the online 2020 Global Whistling Championship? Sure. The guidelines were very simple. It's open to everyone. Anyone that wants to whistle can compete in our uh, competition. All they needed to do is have a Google account so that they could post it on YouTube. Were there time limits or anything like that? Yes. Yeah, so our time limit per video, we had a long discussion on how long that should be and how long, because our ultimate goal is to create a demand for whistling through the respect and the, the admiration of music as whistling, because whistling is so unique and it, it used to be so popular. So. We're very excited that it's come to this. And so we wanted to make sure that everyone could find the, the right amount of time in each video. We decided finally though, that it would be a three minute video. I think that was a, a nice little middle ground. We didn't want to make it too long. Andy, for your submission, you chose George Gershwin's Prelude Number no. 2 in C minor. Can you talk about why you chose to cover that? Uh, well, it was one of those things in band that we played uh, a wind arrangement of it. You know, when you're whistling, you just sort of unconsciously whistle. And that's a tune I used to whistle a lot while well, I walk around whistling it. 
and uh, it's always been a haunting, beautiful melody to me. And with George Gershwin, and I'm, I, you know, I, I like early jazz or jazz age stuff. And it's without the bombast of the theater orchestra, you know, when George was working with his brother Ira, he's just sort of saying, look at this scale. It's in C-sharp minor, but he's taking the blues, uh, he, a lot of accidentals. And I just think it's a lovely, lovely melody. It's a big range challenge because I have to go up both octaves to do it. And then at the end of it, I could, you know, my, my accompanist, Chris Rosser, I just said, you know, when we talked on the phone, he said, lay off the melody. I said, yeah, except for the last pass of the A melody, then I'll, I'll loop around you. It's not too flashy, but then you get to do tricks towards the end. And I just think it's beautiful. How does an amateur whistler build up to becoming professional? How would you guide someone? It's really about concentration. I'm a show person, so I'm an amateur whistler, but a small time showman. So it's all part of the vaudeville of what I do. But it really is listening. Whistlers, really good ones are whistlers. And I, I have, I would argue that a whistler and a hummer has um, music going in their heads all the time. I say with, with writing, when you're listening to yourself, that's when you have your ideas, you pay attention. So really it's, it's like, okay, I can whistle. I'm pretty good at that. Am I going to concentrate on it? And it's just like playing guitar or piano or anything else. You actually have to practice. The advantage that whistlers have is you can practice when you're driving and it's legal. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you know, it's hands-free and I will actually practice particular licks or you know if, if you're a piano player and you're practicing a, a, a piece and you have the music in front of you and there's a four measures that you really need to get right I will find in my mouth how I'm going to quote valve it so that would be something like um, I could choose to go or just blow and stop or I could flip my tongue and go or move the, my tongue in the back of my throat and it, it flips the air for a valve and I have to figure out how I'm going to valve a tune the way a pipe organist has to figure out how to how they're going to register a, a tune I don't know how much <laughs> that makes sense but no it does did you learn these tricks and different techniques just through practicing or did somebody teach you no I learned it on the streets man you know <laughs> It's just, you know, I learned it on my own. I don't have formal whistling training. Yeah, it's just, it, it really is just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all on my own. And I actually, I went to Georgia College in Milledgeville. Our band director was a fellow named Jim Willoughby. And Jim Willoughby was by trade an alto sax player, but he also would pull out his flute. And I was the sound guy. And he would just look at me and, and listen to me whistle. And he would say, you know, you might want to choose a better interval, interval there. I'm doing more Southern than he is. Well, actually, he's pretty Southern. But he would like, he, I mean, I listened to jazz in the jazz ensemble class. I listened to uh, choosing intervals and understanding where it is in the scale, what your range is. 
he'd come up and say, off it. They called me off it in college. Off it's going to come up and trade four. So he would pull out his flute because, you know, the, he played flute as well. And he and I would trade fours, as they say in jazz. He would do four measures and then I would do four measures. So I just, little by little, it's over a lot of years, I, I started um, to do that. And then I actually have an album of whistling called Lip Service. That's clever, isn't it? Oh, I love that. <laughs> do you do any breathing exercises when you prepare to perform or for this submission that you did? Good question. Um, I do fake circular breathing, so uh, which is I blow out. And then uh, for longer phrases and passages, I, I pull in, say, if you're doing Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring, it's, it's an organ piece. So Bach didn't have to breathe, right? You know, so it's... And you have to breathe in to keep the air going. And that's one of my tricks is, is um, so that takes practice. And actually I went sharp when I did the import, inward pull. Now I'm just curious, whenever you are out and about and say you're walking through a forest and you hear the birds singing, do you ever try to mimic back to them what they are singing to you? I have a, a mockingbird who's a close personal friend in the cemetery behind my house. And, and he and I exchange fours, yes. He goes, he goes sharp, uh, but he's, he's, he's on top of a, of a holly tree, a small American holly tree, and he'll, he'll flit up, and, and he's louder, and um, he's got a bigger range, and, and uh, we take on each other. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> Have you ever beat him <laughs> in a competition? Yeah, every once in a while, every once in a while. When, it, when, he, when he's getting sleepy and it's, it's near dusk. <laughs> Guys, can you talk about how the video submissions in the competition are judged Do viewers get to electronically vote for their favorite whistler? Yeah, so viewers get the final say. The judges kind of do the, the dwindling down for everybody. So the judges pick the top 25 finalists, and those are the only ones that are eligible for the grand champion that you can vote for. So basically, we submit you to a Google form. You'll sign into your Google account, and you get three votes. You pick three different videos that you want that you think are worthy of the Global Whistling Champion Award. And then based on the tally of votes, we give them a percentage. So the way the math works is it's an absolute vote count. So that's, that's what we're calling it. Essentially, the number between the highest and the lowest is the gap. So let's just, just take random numbers, for example. So 337, the number one vote at one point in time. And then 62 was the lowest at one point in time. So 337, the person that has the highest, they get 20%. They get the highest maximum public voting. They were first place. And then the 62 will get 3.7% of that. So the gap is 16%, 16.3%. That translates to about 20% of the judging score. So it's a pretty significant number, and it can really make a big difference for the people that have reached out to media. We have a whistler in Spain that's all over the public news in, in Spain. We have Austria, Netherlands here. There's a lot of, of people voting out there and it's going to make you very exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what prize will the winner of the Global Whistling Championship be awarded? The grand prize of knowing they were the best whistler in the 2020 <laughs> Global Whistling Championship. What better prize would you need? That's right. That really is the truth, though. The people here 
But on top of that, we are still trying to get all the finalizations, but they will get a plaque and or a medal. It'll have our logo, it'll have the year, and, and we'll do that for the top three. Do you think virtual competitions will become a permanent part of the guild's regular scheduling versus maybe in-person competitions? We certainly hope so. I mean, we are very close with the organizers of the competition held in California, as well as the competition held in Japan. And we asked for their permission, kind of their blessing, if you will. When we did this, we wanted to make sure that we took their um, viewpoint into account. And so we asked them, talked to them, and I imagine I would really enjoy having three competitions. So there's no reason why we can't do this every year. I mean, everybody has internet all the time. So it's just a matter of coordinating with every, everyone's schedule and making sure that we maximize the participants that are going to compete with us. If I can jump in, the, uh, the group in California is called the Masters of Musical Whistling. And they're the people that I found out about the competition in Tokyo. And I was going to go to Tokyo. You know, I, I thought, okay, I'll do this. I'm, I'm going for it. And it was through their Facebook page that I found out about the International Whistlers Guild. So they're, they're really sharing nicely. I'm very proud of all three organizations. Andy Offutt Irwin, professional whistler and a top 25 finalist in the online global whistling championship. He was joined by Geis Kalasa, one of the founders of the International Whistlers Guild. You can find more information about the competition and the guild on our website wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a visit to Atlanta's Fox Theater to hear about the instrument known as the Mighty Mo. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. In the 1920s and 30s, when people went to a movie theater, they were in for quite a production. And I'm not talking about the movie. That was before the film began. The theater organ was a great attraction for moviegoers back then. And today you can enjoy some of the same excitement. Ken Double is the official organist for the Fox Theater in Atlanta, where he plays the instrument known as the Mighty Mo. 
He joins us now via Zoom. Ken Double, welcome to City Lights. Lois, delighted to be with you and uh, looking forward to a very eventful weekend for sure. Now, one of the tasks of the theater organist is to play as if one were singing. So phrasing is an important component. I'll tell you an interesting story, Lois. I took 10 years of lessons growing up in Chicago. My mother made sure all six of the double boys got introduced to music, and I eventually fell in love with the theater organ. But in 10 years of lessons, it wasn't until my last teacher, the legendary Al Melgard, who played for over 40 years at the Chicago Stadium on the biggest theater pipe organ ever built in that sports arena. And he was the first one that said, when you're going to learn a piece, particularly a ballad, you must learn the lyrics. The lyrics will tell you how to phrase the piece. And so uh, it was a very important piece of education in learning exactly properly how to play the theater organ. So when playing the theater organ, your right hand on what we call the great keyboard, which is the second keyboard, it has to act like a singer. Yes, and my background has no organ education in it, but I studied piano, and I remember reading that Chopin, who is typically the favorite composer of every pianist, at least for the solo repertoire, Chopin didn't have very many students, but those he took on, he insisted that they study voice for the very same reason you were told you need to sing. So what music on Sunday night's concert program would be a good illustration of how you let the organ sing? We're going to play uh, All I Ask of You from Phantom of the Opera. Ah. So many people are familiar with that glorious piece. And so that would be for sure one instance whereby Mighty Mo will clearly be singing. an interesting voice. There is a set of pipes called the tibia, a wooden flute. There are three big tibias in Mighty Mo. Tibia, I think I broke one once on the <laughs> ice in Chicago when I was in high school. Um, that's, that's a bone in the leg, isn't it? It also happens to be a wooden pipe in a pipe organ. In a classical organ, they're sometimes called a stopped flute or a stopped diapason. But anyway, they are, in the theater organ, distinctive because of a very heavy tremulant. They have a box that literally shakes the air, and the air moves just as an opera singer would create vibrato in the voice. And then we're going to play Danny Boy, and oh my, beautiful voices in the organ, and indeed, the instrument will sing. Now, it is not easy to match the sound of a glorious Irish tenor. How does the organ try to approximate that? 
in this instance, I'm not trying to make it necessarily be an Irish tenor, although what I do try to do is build the emotion in the presentation that the lyric calls for. instance, one of the things I'm trying to do with London Derriere or Danny Boy is to offer the listener some of the very distinctive voices in Mighty Mo. So the orchestral oboe will be featured, the harmonic flute will be featured, the French horn voice will be featured, and this discussion lends itself toward educating the audience a little bit that the theater organ was built to imitate an orchestra. That's what the theater organist was to do, use the instrument like an orchestra, accompanying silent films or singing ballads or pop tunes through the organ. It's a fascinating history and function. And here in Atlanta, we are very privileged to have the mighty Mo. It must have been quite a thrill for you to be made the official organist of the Fox. When was that, Ken? Larry Douglas Embry, the late Larry Douglas Embry, held uh, the bench for 14 years up until 2016. And Lois, I get to actually share the bench with a gentleman named Rick McGee. Rick McGee took lessons from um, Bob Van Camp, who played Mighty Mo for many years through the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. And so he has a history with the instruments. So he and I share the bench at the Fox uh, after the passing of Larry Douglas Embry. And it is a privilege. Um, as a past president of a group called the American Theater Organ Society, I had the privilege of traveling all over the country, working with many of our 65 chapters of that national organization, the Atlanta chapter is sponsoring the event at the Fox. And the management at the Fox Theater presents that theater pipe organ and takes care of that theater pipe organ, unlike any other management in the world of the theater organ. I read that the Atlanta chapter of your society, the American Theater Organ Society, played a big role in saving the Fox. Would you tell us about that role? It's interesting. The theater organ people because they love their instrument, they had to have their playpen. So when this effort of turning old movie palaces into performing arts centers began, it was the Ohio Theater in Columbus, Ohio, and it was the very thing. The organ people got to a woman named Mary Bishop, who got to a judge, who halted the wrecking ball at literally the 11th hour, 11 p.m. on a Sunday night before the records ball started. How does that transfer to the Atlanta Fox? Joe Patton got involved with the Fox, the Phantom of the Fox, as people would know him, the late Joe Patton, got involved in the Fox first to get Mighty Mo playing again. And uh, the Fox 
in the period of the Save the Fox campaign because it was inexpensive to have a pipe organ concert or a silent film, used Mighty Mo more than 20 times to draw an audience in and draw attention to the Save the Fox campaign. And so not only did the Atlanta chapter play a role because of its support and love for the theater organ, but at the time of the Save the Fox campaign, there were at least two months where there were deadlines with the bank to you know, pay that month's note, uh, where the dollars were desperately needed to get it done. And the Atlanta chapter on a couple of occasions actually wrote the check uh, to keep the bank from foreclosing on the effort to save the Fox. And so we're very proud to have played a role as so many, many others did. I don't want to put the spotlight on the chapter. We were one of thousands who played a role in saving the Fox, but a lot of our role just happened to be focused on Mighty Mo. And that Save the Fox effort, I believe, was mid to late 1970s? Yes. Uh, it probably took, oh, the better part of six or seven years before they actually put, you know, all of the finances totally in place. But, uh, I mean, kids with their piggy banks, at the time it was Southern Bell, uh, that was going to build a new headquarters uh, on, the, on that corner. And, and understanding that nobody needed a 5,000-seat uh, movie theater anymore. Uh, the understanding, I mean, they tore these theaters down everywhere. It would have been a crime. It would have been a shame. But I don't want to point a bad finger necessarily at Southern Bell. This was a real estate deal. And fortunately, the city said, no, 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 we're not going to allow this to happen. And despite the fact that many said, nobody's going to go down to that theater to see a concert or a Broadway show, and weren't they proved wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Can people who may not even know that the expression relates to the organ know the expression, pull out the stops? Would you tell us about the stop tabs on the Mighty Mo? Sure. Um, so pull out all the stops. It actually refers more to church organs because they have these little round, what we call draw knobs that are the stops. And that dates back to before electricity when the organs were all mechanical. Uh, in this case, the Fox doesn't have draw knobs. So you don't necessarily pull out all the stops. You press down these little tongue shaped tablets. They're multicolored. The white ones are the flutes and the diapasons. The yellow ones are the strings. The red ones are the reeds. And the green ones are the percussions. Hmm. And uh, it makes for, uh, you know, the old song, A Rainbow Round My Shoulders, when you bring Mighty Mo out of the orchestra pit. And so the stops, each one delineates a voice in the organ. Do you have a favorite song to wrap up a show? Oh, at, at, at the Fox, uh, we always take the console down with uh, a quick chorus of Georgia on my mind. It's 
highly appropriate and it's a wonderful piece and it can build to a great big full organ finish. Uh, so that, that's a favorite piece. And obviously I have taken it on the road with me from time to time in, uh, in concerts around the country. Hmm. Can people may be surprised to know that you began your career not as a musician, but as a sportscaster. Do you find that there's any commonality between the work you did as a sportscaster and your role as organist on the Mighty Mo? To a certain degree, uh, Lois, and it's it's kind of odd, and it has nothing to do with either sports or music, but has everything to do that the focal point of what uh, I was doing was the audience. And so just as I would when I was broadcasting hockey games, uh, for example, for the Atlanta Knights from 1992 to 94, it was my job on radio to carry that audience through the game. And my emotions would certainly... Uh, carry through so that in the opening minutes of a hockey game, I wouldn't be as excited as I would be if somebody scored the game winning goal in overtime. <laughs> the same thing happens in working with an audience, not so much at Mighty Mo at the Fox in that um, I'm perfuming the air with music for 30 minutes at the Fox. I don't have a talking relationship with the audience as I would in a concert, but certainly in a concert, my job is to carry the audience to the ups and downs and the emotions that I want to present and the music I have selected to play at that particular time. And so there is certainly that correlation between the two positions. Uh, it's always, always about the audience. Well, we agree with you on that in radio. We feel the same way. Ken Double, this has been a pleasure, and I thank you so very much. Lois, we are so thrilled. The, the, the fact that WABE is joining us in presenting this program Sunday night on the airwaves was a wonderful bonus as we were discussing what we can do to you know, stream a program. Uh, we are thrilled to death to have you as a partner in this venture and to spend a few minutes with you has been a pleasure. Fox Theater organist Ken Double. WABE will air a one-hour concert program featuring the Fox Theater's Mighty Mo Organ this Sunday night at 10 o'clock. That's Sunday at 10 p.m. here on 90.1. There will also be details about streaming the Fox concert on our website, wabe.org slash city lights jazz great freddie cole died earlier this summer he was 88 years old cole was a world-renowned vocalist and pianist who distinguished himself from his older brother nat king cole with a down-to-earth demeanor on stage and by following his own musical path. Freddie Cole also called Atlanta home. To honor the life and legacy of Freddie Cole, we'll hear from five members of Atlanta's jazz community, 
discussing what made Freddie Cole special for them, starting with WABE's host of jazz classics and blues classics, H. Johnson. I remember one night I was on the air and Freddie called me. I played a song by a fellow by the name of Bob Duro. And Freddie called and said, who is that? I said, that's Bob Duro. He said, what's that song you sing? And I said, But For Now is a song. Freddie said, I haven't heard that before. I think I'll put that on my next recording. I said, yeah, right. I thought he'd heard all the music, but he told me the truth. And the next recording had that song on it, But For Now. And when I listened to it, it was equal to, or perhaps even superior to Bob Duro's rendition. But for now, meaning now, and forever, let me kiss you, my darling, then once more. That showed me that Freddie was open to any new music he could hear. He was a musician and a performer. To see him perform was a pleasure. He was so, he was the epitome of what you call cool. But yet it was a demeanor he had that was naturally him. He wasn't trying to be, quote, cool. He was just that way, very sophisticated and humble. You'd have to meet him to know what I'm talking about. And he was willing to perform with anybody and everybody. You look on his recordings if you go out and collect them. He's got some of the greatest musicians in the world playing with him and performing with him. When I think of him now, a tear comes to my eyes because... You know, when you know someone like Freddie and he touches you emotionally in your heart, not just musically, but as a human being, as a person, it's really something to uh, hold dear and revere. I'll never forget him. I suggest that you listen to his material and you'll see what I'm talking about. I love you. I love you, I love you, hey folks, this is Joe Gransden, trumpet player, singer here in Atlanta, Georgia. I first remember meeting Freddie Cole many years ago. He's a big fan of my um, piano player, Kenny Banks, and, and just loves the way Kenny Banks plays the, plays the piano. So he would come to a lot of our performances. I never really had a lot of quality time with him back then, but about 12 years ago, when I first started my big band show at Cafe 290, we played there every first and third Monday. Freddie would come a lot. He would sit right up in the front and he would get up and he would sit in with the band and sing a song or two. And that's when I really got to know him. He would come uh, hang out in the green room with us and, and tell stories and, and um, just, just he would reminisce about his brother and his family and all the great places he had performed all over the world, the most famous jazz clubs. I remember the time Freddie came into Cafe 290 early on in our, our big band days. So I'm, I'm going back now 11 years. And that particular night, he, he wanted to sit in, but he wasn't feeling his best. And the crowd was just packed. And they all saw him sitting up front. And I made the mistake of introducing him before I got a chance to talk to him. So he almost had no choice but to come up and sing. And he was fine. He came up and he sang If I Had You, the great classic song. And right before he came up, the energy in the room was, was so 
great because the band had just played um, Love for Sale, Buddy Rich's Love for Sale, which is a real high energy song. And the crowd was, there had to be 200 people in the place. And Freddie came up and sang this ballad right after that. And instantly the room just got real quiet and real still. And the energy was even greater than it was for the loud big band song. But here he was singing a ballad with my rhythm section. And he, and he brought that room all down to like, as if there was only like two or three people there. If you listen close, you can hear him singing these lyrics and just telling the story perfectly. If I in the crowd or the faces in the band you can see everybody's kind of uh mesmerized by it that's a real gift i don't think that's something that you can learn in music school necessarily i think that's something that you're you're, you're kind of born with and you learn how to craft it in your favor i mean this 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 man could tell a story lyrically that that very few could do uh, you know sinatra could do it nat cole could do it his brother you know tony bennett can do it you know ella could do it but Freddie's one of those folks. So I'll never forget that particular evening. I got to play a little bit of trumpet behind him on that song. And, and I remember thinking to myself the whole time, stay out of his way, try to sound like Freddie. So I was trying to sound like Freddie. And when I say Freddie, I mean Freddie Cole. I don't mean Freddie Hubbard, right? I was standing right next to him. And that was uh, probably one of the thrills of my lifetime. This is a lovely way to spend an evening Can't think of anything I'd rather do This is a lovely way to spend an evening Can't think of anyone else as lovely as you My name is Carl Anthony former jazz DJ at Jazz 91.9 FM WCLK. To watch Freddie perform was a great experience because he was the ultimate professional. I've seen Freddie perform in quiet rooms where people were attentive and appreciative of his style, his voice, and his um, piano playing. And I've seen Freddie in crowded, noisy restaurants, and he never lost a beat. He was just, he was mesmerizing. The way he phrased the lyric and told the story was unlike anybody I've ever seen before. Offstage, Freddie was the same person. He was humble, he was elegant, he was thoughtful. I mean, I'm starting to sound like a Boy Scout now, but that was his personality. You know, he was just, he was a nice guy. I always enjoyed hanging out with him. You know, he was a family man. He loved his sons. He loved his grandson, uh, Tracy, and he loved his daughters. And I mean, he was just 
he was that guy who everybody wanted to be around, everybody wanted to know, and just hang out with him. And it was always a pleasure to just be in his presence and you know talk music and talk life with him. You kind of forget that um, you know all the things that you do with people because it's just everyday stuff. They're not stars in your eyes. They're just regular people with the same issues and dilemmas that everybody has. You know, so it's more of a you know, Freddie, let's go hang out. All right, you know, where you want to go eat? Let's go over here. You know, that kind of thing. And we just hang out and talk. You know, it was just regular for me. If it takes forever, I will wait for you for a thousand summers. I will wait for you till you're back beside me, till I'm holding you, till I hear you sigh here in my arms. I'm Tamara Fuller. I'm the owner of The Velvet Note, and The Velvet Note is a small little jazz club here in Alpharetta, Georgia, about 20, 25 miles away from what was Freddie's home in Atlanta. I met Freddie before I met Freddie. I first became aware of him in my previous career, a career in which I traveled an awful lot. And... You know, when you're on planes and trains and automobiles so much, one of the things that you see as a business traveler, you're, you're disembarking from the plane, you're leaving the gates, and you always see a lineup of people who are there to greet the people you were on the plane with. But as a business traveler, there was never anyone there to greet me. So as I, I lived this life and this career of traveling practically every day, I thought, gosh, you know, it would be so great to have something to come home to. And somehow I discovered, maybe I was looking for something else, but I discovered Freddie Cole and his recordings. And so I put this one specific recording on my stereo system. So when I would get home at the end of the trip, I walk into my place and click the button and there was Freddie's voice to greet me. I will wait for you for a thousand summers. I will wait for you till you're back. When I think of Freddie's role in the jazz community in the Atlanta area, the word that comes to mind is support. Sometimes he would call me to ask me about someone whose show he had seen promoted, and he just wanted to come out and listen to them and hear them and support them. And having Freddie Cole in your audience was bigger than life. But whether it was my place or many other places around town, Freddie would get out of the house and make the trip and come and support.
So my name is Joe Alterman, and I'm a pianist. I grew up here and uh, moved up to New York for about 10 years, and I'm now back. I've just grown up loving jazz, and I'm 31 right now. I was probably, I got into jazz when I was around 12 or 13, and I know that Freddie was one of the first people that I heard, or one of the first people that I remember hearing. Um, There's always just such a special feeling in his music. Even before I knew anything, I knew that when I'd hear him play, I should stop and pay attention to that. And uh, I have a great story about how we first met. And looking back on this, I can't believe I actually did this. Basically, when I was a, a freshman in college, I was a jazz piano major at NYU. And this, that summer, I, I decided I wanted to make a demo recording. And it actually ended up becoming my first album, but I had no recordings at this time. And I remember one song that I always wished he had recorded. Maybe he did. I just never found it. But was I Cover the Waterfront. And I remember I was going to include that song on my demo. And I thought, oh, why don't I get Freddie Cole to sing it? <laughs> I can't believe this. But I remember, uh, I, I mean, I don't think I would have the you know what to do this today. But I basically just looked up his number in the phone book. And I called him and he answered the phone. And I was so nervous. And I basically, you know, told him who I was, what I was trying to do. And he, he politely shut me down. But then he... Uh, <laughs> He kept the conversation going and, you know, we had a nice conversation and, you know, I thought he was just about to hang up and that would be it. But he, then he just said, uh, so what are you doing tonight? <laughs> and I said, nothing. I'm in town for my summer break. And he said, you want to go hear some music? And I said, sure. And so he took me to Dante's Down the Hatch and we sat and uh, listened to the music and he wanted to hear me play. So he got me to go up and play and I very specifically remember you know I played polka dots and moonbeams which is a song I love hearing him sing and there's this one little you know change to the melody that I think Paul Desmond does and I had a feeling that if I played it he would like that and so I did that and I remember looking at Freddie and we both smiled and we both kind of you know we both knew you know looking back on it knowing what I know now I was shocked that he was even cool to me after that phone call Really, there's, there's no one in terms of his music and what he's left. He really left something totally unique and irreplaceable. I mean, he's got this wonderful body of work that he left behind. But to me, what I'm going to miss the most is that feeling in the room when he'd walk on stage and sing one or two notes and the whole vibe of the room would change. I mean, you can still get that when you put on his records, of course. But I can't think of anyone who will have a similar impact on a room that I sit in to watch music, which is fine. Everyone's got their, you know, everyone brings their own thing to each room. But I just remember the thing that he brought to each room was really special. And it felt like you were a part of something really both important and just you're lucky to be there. I'll be seeing you In every lovely summer's day In everything that's light and gay I'll always think of you that way I'll find you in the morning sun And when the night is new I'll be looking at the moon but I'll be seeing you I'll 
pianist Joe Alterman remembering musician Freddie Cole. We also heard from WABE's H. Johnson, trumpeter and singer Joe Granston, Tamara Fuller, owner of The Velvet Note, and Carl Anthony, former DJ at WCLK. This segment was produced by Kevin Rinker. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with Georgia author Laura Morelli. Her new novel, The Night Portrait, is a story of World War II and Italy during the life of Leonardo da Vinci. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are City Lights producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker, and I'm Lois Reitzitz. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.